3: Hi, I'm Talia Bacassis. And I'm Kim France. And welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. So things have been pretty unfucking fine for a while now. And last week, or maybe by the time you hear this, it'll be two weeks ago, as people took to the streets to protest the abhorrent killing of George Floyd and other black men and women, Kim and I wondered what we could do that would be meaningful. And Danielle Henderson, who's a friend of the show, posted a video on Instagram that really provoked me.
4: Good morning. I'm furious. I'm furious. Uh, I want to start by just telling you a little story about when I decided in 2002 uh, to move to Alaska. And I drove there from New York. And I was traversing this country for over a month and a half. And everywhere I went and every friend I talked to and everywhere I stopped along the way, people would ask me where I was going to go. And I didn't know, I didn't have a plan, but I knew for certain at that moment that the only thing I could say is that I would not be going to the South. That as a black woman alone in a car with New York plates, I did not feel safe going further than Tennessee. That has been my whole life, is learning how to navigate myself through this world in a way that I can protect myself from racism as much as possible. I've had to make decisions every single day of my life to avoid racist violence and to avoid racism in general.
3: And my first reaction was that I wanna be hearing from people like Danielle. So before I talk to you for too long is if you're not here, hi Danielle.
4: Hi guys. (laughs)
3: Welcome back.
4: Thanks for having me back.
3: Yeah, so Kim and I have a platform and today we wanna do less talking and more listening. So we've asked Danielle to come on and to have her set the agenda too. So I hope this won't really be an interview We haven't prepared questions like we usually do, more just points to talk about if needed. So, Danielle, this is a loaded question, but how are you feeling and what is on your mind?
4: Um, I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling activated. And I'm feeling strangely uh, hopeful. I think that um, the, the reason that I made... The video that I posted to Instagram, um, which I truly didn't imagine anyone but my current followers would see hmm. um, i I made that video out of frustration because I was seeing so many of my friends, all of whom were white, posting something pithy and then immediately moving on with their lives so for example, I had a friend post something about the Tulsa race riots and how there's a history of protest in race with this, in this country. And her next post was that she was so happy that the soccer fields were open again. And then she posted a picture of herself drinking a martini. Hmm. And I reached out to her and I said, Hey, you know, this just feels really insensitive to me right now. So I'm going to mute you for a little while, but I'll be back. And, um, she heard me. She was really upset and, you know, reached out to me and texted me and was like, you know, re- realized her, her error. Um, but she wasn't the only one. I was seeing this constantly where it was, yep, Black Lives Matter. Anyway, here's my kid in a school play or something to that effect. And what really hit me more than anything was this notion that when these things happen, when anything regarding race happens in America... I'm gutted for weeks. I cannot get over it. When I hear that a Black person has been murdered by the, police office, by the police, I think about it every single day for weeks, months, years. I still think about Michael Brown. I still think about Tamir Rice. I still think about this stuff. And so it just dawned on me that so many of the people in my personal life who I do consider friends, and I do consider close to me, I haven't shared this pain with them. And they aren't aware of how I'm feeling. Hmm. So if they don't know how I'm feeling, and they're deeply in my life, that's a failure on my part to not communicate that. But it hmm. also reminded me and kind of brought to light for me the, the, the notion that for some reason, I've learned to shut up about this stuff. I've learned how to carry it alone. Mm. And that's not helping anything. And the reason I learned how to carry, that, that I should carry it alone is because of stuff like this, because it only matters to the white people in my life for a moment. Mm-hmm. And so rather than double down on that pain and say, well, I'm hurting and you don't care, or I'm hurting and you don't see it, I thought, let me just be explicit about what I'm seeing and what I'm feeling and hopefully, the people again that follow me or the people that are in my life will understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did, but they it also had a, a much, much more far reaching um, effect than I than I had intended.
3: Social media has been so confusing to me because a lot of what I was seeing initially felt very performative and to signal to people like I'm a good guy. And I felt really worried that posting something would make it seem like I was making it about me. Um, so I didn't post anything. And then like after a few days, there was the black square. Mm. And I woke up and I thought, okay, this feels right because it feels like a statement of mourning. It feels like I'm saying, I'm not the person to speak right now. I'm showing solidarity. And in my mind, it felt powerful and then it turned really quickly and i was like fuck
4: and the problem with the with this, with the black squares is that people were hashtagging it with black lives matter and so if you posted that black square it was and you checked the black lives matter hashtag all you saw was black squares and that's I usually understand. that hashtag is usually a resource for people to find uh, ways to reach out and help and get motivated and get activated um And I, you know, I I posted something about that and I had to turn comments off because I was immediately inundated with people that were trying to tell me, well, that wasn't the original message. And I'm like, okay, I know. I know that wasn't the original message. But my my post was basically, um, Mm -hmm. why would you not interrogate something that is asking you to be completely silent on a day when there are elections happening in this country, that you should Mm -hmm. be resisting the knee-jerk reaction and resisting the urge to follow the crowd for the appearance of solidarity and actually think about what your silence means. It's really disconcerting to me whenever I see this crowd-following mentality because people are so eager to do the right thing, quote-unquote. But the right thing right now is using your voice, your platform, and your accessibility, to make noise and to bring attention to this this is this feels different to me this time you know these these protests that i 've experienced and seen in my life um, you know this one feels different. I think people are in it for the long haul,, yep. and it is it feels a little more pointed and a little more focused in that way that people are really internalizing what they're they 're hearing and seeing, mm-hmm. uh, and they want to make it better long term so if we 're running this marathon. We cannot be clogging up the pipes with silence (laughs) when we should (laughs) be using every single tool that we have to amplify voices.
5: Yeah, you know, it seems like there's a much more of an emphasis this time on action, on like Mm. words mean only so much. They're important, but they only mean so much. And now the next move is action. And I've been doing a lot of meditating on what... (sighs) action looks like for me. And beyond educating myself, you know, I believe it's more than just throwing money at something, you know, writing my check to the Southern Poverty Law Center and calling it good. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a, a lot of people are feeling slightly paralyzed. Like, I know what I need to do. And, and I, I think that you were great in that video when you said, um, I'm not going to show you what to read. It's all out there.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Everything that you've needed to read, if you truly give a shit about this, has been available to you. And I think that there's a fear of doing things wrong. And there's a fear of overstepping boundaries that paralyzes people into complete inaction. And that's something that we need to change as well. And that's that's a part of, I mean, that's something that comes out of our, you know, current cancel culture. And, you know, there, there are a lot of things that have kind of led up to this this moment where we've never had more access to having a voice and having these personal platforms, but everyone's afraid they're going to use them in the wrong way. And I think that my, my overall point there was, there's no wrong way. There's no wrong way. If you care at all, and you take action consistently, that's the only way. And I think that um, to point out to people who feel paralyzed or who felt immobilized with fear of overstepping or doing something wrong, it was really important to me to tell them, you could talk to your family and that's enough. Mm -hmm. If you talk to the people in your family who are racist or even start by acknowledging that there are people in your family who are racist— uh, that is a way to start. You know, I have had these conversations with friends this week. Um, one of my oldest friends even reached out and said, "You know, I really I want to talk to my family about their racism." And we just had a really earnest and wonderful talk about how she could approach her el- her elderly parents about the you know the things they say around her children, um, and how she could approach that in her life and. It worked. I mean, I I say it worked in that like it worked to activate her to do that (laughs) and to be comfortable with having these conversations with people that love you could sometimes lead to and often leads to your comfort with having these conversations in a bigger way. So, yeah, ask your boss why you don't have any Black people on your board of directors. Ask people in your life why you don't invite the Black kids to your kids' birthday parties, You know, just kind of, again, it seems very basic to me and bare bones in a way, but asking people to think turns out to have been a pretty powerful thing, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. I did not expect. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: I mean, there was a moment that I felt uncomfortable in the video when you said, you know, I see your kids at their birthday parties and they're all white kids. I sent my kids to a school that has a lot of diversity And I find that the kids do a lot of Mm self-segregating. I've been talking to them about it, and it's really hard for them to fathom why I'm trying to get involved in their friend life. (laughs) You know, like, anyway, we've been talking about white privilege, and we've been talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. But it feels like a long road before we get to a point where there's a lot more opening up to each other's lives and our kids' lives.
4: I fully understand how and why that happens. You know, I was raised in a predominantly white community and so whiteness was normalized for me. And Mm -hmm. I grew up feeling ashamed of my own blackness in so many ways. And that was, that was something I had to dismantle in my own life. Um, The, the feelings that I was inferior um, because I grew up around, I grew up in a way that I didn't see blackness celebrated outside of my home. And, so then, when it was celebrated inside my home i was like what are, what what are you talking about that 's not the message i 'm getting from other people It was very confusing right. uh, and so that 's work I had to do um to accept the way that I looked and carried myself and the things that I was taught and the things that i acted acted upon in the world and so the normalizing of whiteness i think is is a powerful thing because it happens so innocuously for some people. And sending your kids to a diverse school is fantastic. But if the only way your kids learn that race, that racial difference is acceptable is in a space of learning, and they don't Mm -hmm. see it in your home, and they don't see it in your lives, then it becomes becomes something they compartmentalize. And they only have to address it in a certain way.
3: Well, you're making me think my sister-in-law is Black, and my brother's wife basically, and so my nephews are biracial, and I wonder if they feel like we have normalized whiteness in our family, you know, that they're fitting into our white framework when right. they're with us. How old are they? They're five and seven. I would ask them. Yeah. K-
4: kids Kids are pretty, uh, pretty smart about their lives and... Yeah, you know, I would I would ask them because I'm I I would be surprised if the answer was no. I'll put it that way. <laughs> again, well, it's, it's funny not the, because
3: uh... I was talking to my kids about it, and I was talking about their cousins, and they were like, "They're black, <laughs> right?" right. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, like, so, do you feel like you grew up? Like, I feel like it was ingrained into our education system that colorblindness was the right way to look at things, which now we know mm-hmm. is not the right way to look at things. But I feel like I was taught that. And that's something that I have to unpack.
4: Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think, for me, it was slightly worse, because I went to school in the early 80s and, <laughs> and early 90s. And so we reached colorblindness by the 90s. But in the early 80s, it was kind of like, we have George Washington Carver and Martin Luther King Jr. And you don't right. have to care about the rest. And I will say there was a point when I was in first grade where my first grade teacher turned to me, the only black child in the classroom, and asked me about Martin Luther King Jr. Wow. And I was like, I am seven years old. I have no idea <laughs> what you're talking about. You're like, you're the teacher. You are supposed to be teaching me about this guy. I had to go home and ask my family who, they weren't reluctant to teach me. It's just like, they thought the same thing. Like she's six years old. That's, should we talk to her about MLK now or wait? I don't know. But like, you know, I I grew up in a way that we talked about civil rights and these things were present in my home, but not enough for me to teach them. <laughs> At seven. Yeah. <laughs> At seven. And so for me, it was, it was by the time we worked our way up to colorblindness, I had already experienced so much erasure that colorblindness just felt like, a mild win. Like, oh, you're acknowledging that race exists. You still want to ignore it, but you're acknowledging mm. that it exists. Okay, I guess that's a win. Mm-hmm. Um so it was it was it's very damaging to say to people it's okay to not think about race as a positive thing. Mm. And I think that is definitely something that a lot of people have had to unpack, but that's also seemingly the root of a lot of the kind of bristling that you see from white people in this moment because they think i'm not racist i'm not a racist i I've, I've been taught colorblindness i've been taught to accept people i'm not racist but then when you look at the things they teach their children and the things that they don't have to think about like you you can't avoid this if you live in a culture like ours if you live in a culture that is racist yeah. you will always mm-hmm. be impacted by racism whether it's by ignorance or by action
3: All right, we're gonna take a quick break here and we'll be back in a sec.
0: Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated.
1: Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
0: Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin. And I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. And highest Sarah absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long. And I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks percent off
3: welcome back to everything is fine
5: I'm curious about um, something Tally and I have talked about a little bit um, which is that, you know, I remember once being in a back black studies class in college and an argument breaking out between a white student and a black student and, you know, I went to Oberlin which was a very, you know, the first liberal arts college to accept black students. The town of Oberlin was the northernmost point on the Underground Railroad so it had a very rich civil rights history but was a very self-segregated campus and the mm. black student who was arguing with the white students said, I'm not here for your education. Ugh. And I thought that was really powerful. And it's hard to know how to build diversity in your own life when it doesn't exist. It's It's a high class problem, but it is in thinking about these things. It's something I've thought about.
4: What ends up happening? I think that the violence that's present there is that since we are usually in the position to have to teach, that detracts from our ability to learn as Black people. That's kind of what I'm getting from from what that person had said, is that, you know, my my having to spend time on educating you is detracting from my own ability to advance in mm-hmm. my life. And that has also been something that that Black people have been relegated to. It's a role that we have inadvertently been relegated to in this, system and in this culture is if you want to learn about Blackness, you have to get our permission or you have to find someone who is Black and directly ask them to help you, um, that it's not something you can just get to on your own. And then it's also something that, that's part of the things that I've internalized where I for a long time felt like that was my role, that the only things, the way things were going to get better is if I did take the time to educate people and to... You know, speak with them in a way that they could could access and understand.
5: I was um I was very struck by um, this comment that you made in your Instagram post. Um, you cannot consume our culture and ignore our humanity. I just think that's huge.
4: Yeah, that was that was that came right from the heart. Um, and again, the frustration of seeing somebody with all of the accoutrements of blackness and all of the protection of whiteness has been infuriating to me for years. So we'll see articles about, you know, reading, I don't read magazines anymore, but like fashion magazines, but like, um, you know, seeing articles online about like how to plump your lips and how to, you know, all of a sudden seeing nail art basically becoming a huge thing and growing up in a world where I was taught that that was a quote unquote ghetto look. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden it's become a multi-million dollar operation and business for white people, that is confusing as fuck to me, and it's infuriating. It makes me so mad because I think, again, there are all of these ways that... You can pick at us. You can pick at us for to teach you, and you can pick at us and pick at us and pick at us, and it's like we're being ripped apart little by little, without you giving a shit about who we are as people, and without having to interrogate your relationship with race at all. So I see women constantly see white women with extensions. All of a sudden, extensions are are socially acceptable. When I was growing up, they were called weaves, and they were made fun of at every comedian, every late night talk show. They were, they were a joke because it was a Black woman's thing to do. And mind you, for a long time, weaves were used as a way to get straighter hair or to get the appearance of straighter hair so that our hair would be more acceptable to white people. This is before the natural hair movement, you know, post-natural hair movement in the 60s and pre-natural hair movement in the odds. In the <laughs> um, there was a moment where it was like... You know, we kind of were relegated to, to having to look socially acceptable and adopt these tenets of whiteness. So again, it's it's this confusing cultural message where weaves for us are are a joke, but extensions for you are something something that sincerely enhances your life. And I just do not understand. To me, that disconnect has always been apparent. It has always been apparent. And so seeing it on such a large scale, when we're at such a point of racial disharmony, it no, nothing can get me from zero to 60 in anger quicker than seeing the way that, again, people are doing TikTok videos for Megan the Stallion, who is a gorgeous Black woman, has a gorgeous body like like everything about her screams blackness and I'm looking at all of these people posting TikTok videos and they are like so white and they are so trying to do the dances and do all the stuff without even realizing where these dances originate and I read something about uh, there was a teenage girl who created a dance for TikTok and a white dancer started getting endorsement deals because she did it and kind of you know she was already popular but She started getting um, money, like actual money that made her life better by stealing and not crediting the dance of a teenage black girl.
5: Well, this is a story as old as time. I mean, you know, the entire history of blues and, you know, black music in this country has been co-opted from Elvis forward from beyond
4: that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is we see you. (laughs) <laughs> we see this happening. We see the way that you only want to pay attention to the parts of us that you can utilize in your life to make your life better without giving a shit about making our lives better. And you can't expect people to see this for decade upon decade upon decade and be okay with it. I think that this this boiling point has been bubbling for a long time.
5: And yet, I mean, I feel a little tricky saying this, but I remember Ruth Reichel, the food writer mm. and editor, she once said, you cannot love a cuisine of a country and hate the people from that country. And yes. so I think at the, some base level, affection for black culture is, is a fine thing. But what happens with that affection, the way it's manifested is, is where some of the problems come in.
4: Yeah, it's absolutely true. Like it's it's the affection for the culture without, like I said in my video, it's, it's without recognizing our humanity or the humanity behind it. So it is a powerful thing to love black culture, but not if you're not saying I love black culture or not if you're not saying I got this from black culture or mm-hmm. if you're not acknowledging this is the person that originated this. This is where I found out about this. This is why I'm supporting this. Like that without that crucial piece, it's meaningless. Right?
3: You mentioned to me that you wanted to talk about the fallacy of helplessness.
4: For many black people, I know this from from talking to my friends and from talking to, you know, to to black people throughout my life that this is something that that we have all had some experience with. We don't get to be helpless. We don't get to say somebody else will figure it out in any, in any situation, whether it comes to work, education, um, social situations, we don't have the chance to say that. And so my life in particular has been one that has built, been built entirely on self-sufficiency and feeling helpless Is not something that I can sit with for longer than thirty seconds because I know there has to, there always has to be a way to try to start to figure things out.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. So
4: when I wanted to go back to college, I figured out how do I fill out the forms? How do I do all the things? Like how when I wanted to figure out how to get a better job, I had to think about what what are the things I have to do to apply or to get to. There's always been this extra layer of work for black people in this country, because we don't get to sit in our helplessness. So when I see people, particularly white people, saying things to me like, I, I don't know where to begin, or like, I got a message the, the other day on Instagram that said, um, that I didn't respond to, um, that said, I, you know, you posted this list of books and and said I should read these, but then I'm reading in other places that it's not good to read these books, and I just, I don't <laughs> know what to do. <laughs> and I'm like, if you can figure out how to use Instagram, you can form an opinion on what you should be doing about these books. Like, I just, I, I actually, I get angry about helplessness because I think that feeds into so many of our social problems, but particularly when it comes to race. And I just, I'm very, very disconcerted by and, and just kind of insulted by this notion that I can't do it. Because if mm-hmm. I ever said that in my house, it's like, well, you can't do it. Well, then you don't you don't get to do anything. <laughs> like right. if I said that about one thing, it would carry across the line to everything. This helplessness, it's never been available to me. You know, I have mm-hmm. always had to have more, put more of an effort forward. So if I needed to make more money when I was younger, the way I did that was to get more jobs. That was the lesson that was taught to me get two jobs, get three jobs. You have 24 hours in the day. You should be working as much as possible if you need more, more money. And that's you know, not something I believe in now. <laughs> like I think work smarter, not harder is legit. Mm-hmm. But that's the, that, those are the lessons that I was raised with. It wasn't sit and wait for someone else to figure it out. So I think that, it's, that self-sufficiency is tied with helplessness in a way that I think is encouraged in whiteness, but is not encouraged in Blackness.
5: Something I've been really thinking about a lot and I've been so struck by um, is just the fact that to be a Black person in America is to exercise restraint all the fucking time.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It is... There's a tweet that I saw that said it is... um, It's amazing... And I'm paraphrasing here, but it's amazing that Black people are only asking for understanding and not revenge. Yeah. And I think that that is... So pointedly true because the feelings that we have of restraint that we have to exhibit on a near hourly basis yeah. are astonishing. Because again, we all know the narrative. If I get angry, I am an angry black woman. And what that phrase means to people is she is now invalidated. I don't have to listen to what she's saying because she's mad. Mm hmm. That is what that phrase means to people. She's an angry black woman, so who cares? You know, they're all all black women are angry about something, but meaningfully, I think that it's again that exercise in restraint that allows us the access to our emotional life because it is it's tight in here. (laughs) You know, it is hypertension exists for a reason. It's because a lot of us can't meditate our way out of feeling stress because we're stressed all day, every day. It's a cultural crisis in blackness. The stress that we carry every day from being so restrained and from having so few avenues, so few pathways to respectability, that just to get through a day intact is a miracle. It's a miracle. It is a miracle that any Black person in this country can produce anything creative. I truly believe that, that we have to spend so much energy thinking about every move we make, it's a miracle that anything joyful comes out of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's, and again, that's not to say that the black life is a life purely of pain. Cause I think that is also something that's been completely misconstrued. What I'm saying is that we're not able to show as much joy because we have to also carry this extra layer of pain. Even the restraint that we have to exhibit when it comes to pointing out injustices, that's a privilege that white people have. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: You know, when I sit in my car and I'm watching people drive like fucking maniacs, I have always had to be the safest driver I've ever known. I've never had a ticket. I've never had a speeding ticket or a parking ticket. Because to be pulled over by the police for any reason is terrifying to me. Yeah. I don't get to zip in and out of traffic, even small things like that, you know, like I have to exercise the restraint all day (laughs) because I can't take the risk that a cop is going to see me do something that everyone else around me is doing, knowing that I will be singled out for my Blackness. And also, let's be clear, I am a light-skinned Black person. I don't pass by any means. You know, I have very Black features and, you know, I I read as Black, but I'm a light-skinned Black person. It's even worse if you're darker skinned when it comes to these social social mores and, and, and injustices. And so I think that that's also important to recognize is that something in my life that has always been confusing to me and has always been like a real place of restlessness for me is that I'm very often people's only Black friend. And I think it's because they can recognize the, the whiteness, you know, they can recognize what they see is the whiteness because I was raised in a white culture. So I speak the language and I look like I'm a lighter skinned black person. So I look less threatening to them because their internalized racism tells them that there are marked differences in types of blackness. That's racism. And again, it's, it's people don't think they don't. They're just not thinking enough. Now I think people are starting to, but they're just not thinking enough about the ways that these internalized racist thoughts impact their relationships. If I'm your only black friend, you've got a problem. <laughs> <You know?
5: laughs> but, but back to my other point, like, how do you, I mean, I know I sound like a clueless white woman, but like, how do you make black friends? How do you make black <laughs> friends without making it look like you're like the worst kind of white person? Are not the worst, but. right
4: I think that's a valid question because again this is this leads into what we were talking about when it comes to the helplessness right like well i don't know how to make black friends, so I just will not have any <laughs> and so I think that like we don't want you to like pantomime blackness in order to, to to be friends with us. I think that the fundamental issue and the structural racist issue at the crux of that is that most white people do not assume that they have anything in common with black people. Mm -hmm. So when I go, for example, to a yarn store, because I'm a knitter, I can see people being surprised that I'm there. Hmm. And when I sit in these stores and like I join a yarn circle or, you know, a lot of yarn stores have big tables where you can just sit and kind of knit with people. And when I used to do that, I could see how like it was like shocking to people that I could sit down and talk with them about yarn or talk about that. I think that the key to that is recognizing your commonality, but also putting yourself in places where you're not assuming that you don't have anything in common with black people. I think that that is a huge fallacy that we're to- that we're taught as a way of separating us. And Sometimes you're, it's going to be uncomfortable in terms of like, you're going to put yourself in, uh, in situations that you've never been in before. You might have to specifically go to things that you're not a part of or, you know, go to Afropunk or like go to things that you don't think you're a part of and you might get some dirty looks. And there are a lot of spaces that are designated kind of a space for black people to feel more free and not have to see white people. (laughs) (laughs) I I totally get that I'm not saying like infiltrate everything but I think that if you work with someone who's black don't just assume that the only thing you have in common is work (laughs) you have to talk to them about their lives and it's the same way you make friends with anyone what do you have in common and how can you meet for a drink and talk about that more like that is truly it It's, it's the invitation to dismantling your own racism that is the way in But then also realizing that you have to resist the assumption that you will not have any commonality because that's just false. Listen, I mean, you've already kind of marked this and hit this on the head in terms of talking about the restraint that we have to exhibit all day. Black people are really cool. (laughs) (laughs) We are really patient and cool. Um, So as long as the approach isn't specifically like, hey, I want to make a black friend, I think it's going to be okay.
3: (laughs) The other thing you mentioned to me that you wanted to talk about was respectability politics.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, and again, it's, it's part of the restraint, part of the anger is that I have been taught since I was born that there is a certain way for me to act in public. And I think that the biggest shock and disappointment of my grandmother's life is when I got into punk and grunge because (laughs) I looked like I crawled out of a garbage can and she could not handle that. She was like, you don't understand how people will perceive you uh, in this world if you look like this. And if you have all this different color hair and your clothes are ripped and you're shopping at thrift stores, thrift stores, mm. like it was really, so the respectability politics in terms of blackness tend to be about making yourself pre- acceptable to white people, right? Or presentable enough to white people that they won't immediately have a negative reaction to you. And um, I really bristled at that as a kid. You know, I thought, well, fuck you. I could see all my other white friends were able to do this. Why can't I do this? You know, why, like, why do they get to look like shit and, and not and not think it's going to impact every job they get down the line? Yeah. Whereas I have to think about that at 13 years old.
3: Like they can own nirvana old. and grunge and you can't.
4: Yeah. And they can have and they have the free. It, it, it's about the freedom too, like you, the freedom to explore your personality and who you are and what you like. I think it's kind of it's stifled in black and black people because we're we're also wrestling with not wanting to be shot and not wanting to be <laughs> accosted and not wanting to risk not getting hired um, because we are not, you know, the, the bohemian kind of look that came up last few years and has been very popular. Um, I would not get a job if I showed up to an interview wearing some of the things I see white people wearing. That's just the <laughs> truth of it. And that's because their internalized racism makes them think that a black person, because respectability politics works both ways, And their internalized racism makes them think that a Black person is of lesser quality if they're not making a concentrated effort to appear safe. And that is something that goes both ways. And I think that when it comes to whiteness, uh, the respectability politics tend to be more on the side of, I don't want to rock the boat. So again, if I don't have the exact right thing to say, I'm not going to say anything or... You know, I kind of don't want, I just don't want to appear foolish. Um, so that leaves a, lot of, leaves a lot on the table when it comes to how they interact <laughs> with Black mm-hmm. people. It's really, again, something that I, I just work so hard to dismantle in my own life. Like I, um, you know, when I stopped straightening my hair, that was a huge moment for me. And it's a huge moment for most Black women um, to just let the hair that grows naturally out of our head grow Um, And I had dreadlocks for a long time and my dreadlocks were like down to my waist and, you know, just really, I really let it go (laughs) like in Mm -hmm. a big, big way because I was, again, at that moment looking to to reconnect with my Blackness um, in a way that did not have any shame attached to it. Is there anything else you want to say? I'm just, I'm really grateful. I'm just, I'm grateful to have, I'm grateful to be in this moment. I think that it is... Something I never expected to see in my lifetime was a conversation about how we can defund the police instead of how do we manage these fucking maniacs. That is incredible to me. Like, seeing these changes, it does give give me hope. And I'm not a hopeful person. I am a very negative person. (laughs) I'm a negative person, so I don't generally carry these feelings of hope inside. <laughs> I feel like the world is shit. Let's just get through it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am hopeful and i'm 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 seeing that these conversations that we're having that are really bolstered by youth um, I'm just so impressed with the young black and brown kids in this country and I'm impressed by by women who are fighting you know fat phobia and like people who are truly changing the message and encouraging encouraging people to change the way they see and not the way they look. You know, that is important to me, that it's, it's, it's something that we can really hang our hat on. And I, I don't want people to rest. I don't want this to stop. This is a lifelong lesson. And these are lifelong actions that people need to take. But I do think it's that it's important to be to find something positive to hang on to in this moment without resting there. And that's where I'm choosing, choosing to go. I'm very, very inspired.
3: Yeah, I hope this level of activism is sustained. Um, and I hope conversations are opening up everywhere. Um, so thank you, Danielle, for coming in and talking to us about
4: all this. I'm just I'm always so thankful to talk to you both too. Thank you for having me.
3: Thanks, Danielle. You should follow Danielle on Instagram, everybody. Uh, is it Danielle
4: Henderson? I can't remember now. Nope, it's just Danielle Henderson.
3: Danielle Henderson on Instagram. Thanks everyone for listening. To Everything is fine. If you like the show, be sure to rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts. If you want to email us about show ideas or anything else, you can reach us at tallyandkim at gmail.com. We have an Instagram that is Podcast, and you can read Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com.
1: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too.